You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Great. Well, thank you guys so much for your very warm welcome. It's great to be with you. For those of you I don't know, I thought maybe I'd just start by showing you a picture of my wife and kids. Uh, here they are. And uh, just to introduce our subject, I thought maybe I'd begin by telling you a funny story. When my wife, Julia, was expecting our fourth child, she went into labor and it was all happening very fast. So fast that we did something we'd never done before, we called an ambulance. And as we were racing in the back of the ambulance to the hospital, it occurs to me that we don't have another girl's name, if this is going to be another girl, because we've used up all of our girls' names on our first three daughters. And so looking for a bit of last-minute inspiration for the name, you may be amused to know that I asked the ambulance lady, by the way, what's your name? And she said, Tanith. I said, pardon? She said, Tanith. I said, oh, uh, how do you spell that? She said, T-A-N. I-T-H. She said, do you know what it means? I said, no. She said, it means the serpent lady. (laughs) So, we called our fourth daughter, Emma. (laughs) Now, looking back now, all those years later, there was never really much chance that we would call her Tanith, There was never really any confusion about Emma's identity. And in the same way, when God encourages us to share our faith story, when Christ calls us to go into all the world and make disciples, it isn't a case of mistaken identity because God knows who you are. He knows what you're like. He knows exactly how you feel right now about this subject and He believes in you. He backs you. He supports you. He empowers you to share the gospel in your world. So we can speak good news secure in the knowledge God loves me. He's proved that to me when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. God's on our side. So yes, it's true. In the Bible, Jesus calls us to give away the gospel, to share the gospel, to not keep it to ourselves. As we do this, we're going to see this morning that actually there are many benefits for us. There are huge advantages for me of living a life, massive advantages for you of living a life that is directed towards unconvinced people. So let me just comment on this rather unusual choice of subject. Hey, folks, we don't tell other people the good news about Jesus for our benefit. We obey Christ and his commands because Christ is the king. But just for this morning, we are going to focus on those incidental fringe benefits for us. So this will be a bit of fun. The more we focus on unconvinced, unreached people, let's look at five benefits for us. Number one, there will be more joy in our lives. 
I was talking to this uh, young woman in our church. She's called Heather. And Heather's friends with these two sisters called Sarah and Anna. Now, neither Sarah nor Anna would have called themselves Christians. And Heather, this young lady, young woman in our church, she invites Sarah, the older of these two sisters, to our Alpha launch party. Yeah? Now, Sarah is a trainee lawyer. And the following morning... The night before she was invited to the Alpha launch party, the following morning, just so happens, her first responsibility that day is just to take some legal documents that she's kept in her flat overnight to the courthouse. So on the one hand, you and I could say, well, it's a fairly straightforward job. I mean, it's literally moving some pieces of paper from A to B. On the other hand, Sarah's boss has explained to her that this trial can't start until these documents have arrived at the courthouse. So there's a bit of responsibility. Sarah thinks to herself, don't panic. What she decides is, I'll just set my alarm earlier than normal. She actually sets two alarms. Sarah even arranges for her friend to phone her in case her two alarms fail. So she wakes up on time. Everything's cool. She gets to the end of her road. She turns the corner. She gets to the bus stop. As she gets to the bus stop, she discovers... That overnight, the council have coned off, cordoned off the bus lane. There's a sign up explaining they're going to be replacing the Victorian sewers. So her bus isn't running today. Sarah thinks, don't panic. I will simply walk to the underground train station. So she walks to the underground station. When she arrives at the underground station, there's nobody there. The gates are locked. There's a padlock. On the gates is a whiteboard sign. London Underground regrets to inform you the northern line is part suspended today. Sarah thinks to herself, don't panic. I will simply walk to the Overland train station. It's quite a long walk to the Overland train station. As she arrives at the Overland train station, her heart sinks. People are queuing to get in to the Overland train station. So she has to queue into the station. She has to queue through the ticket barrier. She has to queue all the way down the steps, even when she's on the platform. Sarah has to queue on the platform as the trains are arriving. She's getting closer and closer. Eventually, she gets to the very edge of the platform. She's definitely going to get on the next train. But she looks at the board to see when the next train will arrive. And she's thinking, I don't know if a train arriving then is going to be able to get me and these documents to the courthouse in time. And she starts to get really concerned. And she thinks to herself, what would my Christian friend Heather do if Heather was in this situation? She thinks Heather would pray to God. Now, Sarah explains that she has never prayed a prayer to God as an adult before. But on the edge of the platform, she thinks, do you know what? I'm going to pray a prayer to God. So she doesn't pray out loud. She just closes her eyes and she says something like this. Hello, God. It's me, Sarah. <laughs> Guess if you're God, you probably knew that. Yeah, so hello. Um, yes, I'd be really, really grateful, um, God, if somehow you could get these documents to the courthouse before 
The trial is scheduled to begin. I'd be really, really grateful. Uh, please, uh, thank you very much. I'm not quite sure how you do this, but please could you do that? I'd be really grateful. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, yours sincerely. Um, over and out. Uh, amen. Sarah, she prays. She finishes the prayer. She opens her eyes. And there, standing next to her, on the platform, is the barrister. The barrister who she's supposed to give the papers to at the courthouse is standing next to her on the platform. And she's so shocked to see him there that she doesn't actually say anything. She just hands the papers over to him like this. Of course, the barrister receives these bits of paper. He immediately recognizes the case and says, Oh, he says, what a marvelous service. I'm really very impressed. Thank you ever so much. Now I can prepare on the train. It's really rather good. Thank you so much. Marvellous. Thank you very much indeed. And so the train arrives. The barrister gets on the train and Sarah's left thinking, oh, come on. I mean, what are the chances? I mean, really, what are the chances? What, what, what are the chances that the first time that I ever pray a prayer to God as an adult, that at that moment when I pray, that the one person on the planet who could have most easily solved my problem would just by chance, happened to be standing right next to me. Now, you probably won't be surprised to hear that the following Wednesday, Sarah turned up at our Alpha launch party. And she brought her sister, Anna. The two of them came along. That's when I met them. And they actually came every Wednesday to Alpha. And then they came on the weekend away. And actually, on the weekend away, both Sarah and Anna, they both made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And subsequent to that, uh, sometime afterwards, both Sarah and Anna uh, were baptized at our church. And actually, sometime after that, both Sarah and Anna, they both actually married young men in our church. They didn't marry the same young man. <laughs> that would obviously, that would be a really strange end to the story. No, that didn't happen. Um, they married different young men. Uh, uh, so I, I was so excited about what happened that I went back to Heather. Do you remember Heather at the very start of the story? She was the young woman that invited these two sisters along in the first place to Alpha. I said, hey, it's amazing what's happened. Don't you think? Hey, how is it for you? And I was so taken by what she said that I wrote it down. She said, the more I prayed for Sarah to know Christ, Heather said, I found myself thinking about how amazing it would be for Sarah to have eternal life. And praying regularly for Sarah brought the wonder of my own salvation front and center in a new way. Heather said, focusing on lost people has reminded me that all my own problems are in the context of me being guaranteed certain of a place in heaven. Heather said, I found it hard to stay offended, to stay upset about things when I'm continually having my mind flooded with the facts. I'm going to be spending most of my time in heaven. Thinking evangelistically, she said, has built in my mind a mountain of gratitude for my own salvation. She said, it's hard for the seeds of bitterness and disappointment to take root in a thankful heart. Colossians 1.27 says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. And this is such an empowering, exciting verse because it shows how much God is with you, how you and Christ are now part of the same team. Can you see how important you are? Can you see how valuable you are? So you are the kingdom of God. 
when your alarm goes off tomorrow morning, when you hit the shower, Christ in you is up. And the kingdom of darkness is not happy. Because actually the devil would be delighted if there were no Christians in business and no Christians in healthcare and no Christians in education and no Christians in sport, no Christians in the media. The devil would love it if all Christians were to live in cozy Christian ghettos. Why? Because the devil knows that in John 17, Jesus didn't pray, Oh, Father, please take the nice Christians out of the nasty world. No, the devil knows in John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, keep the Christians in the world. Why did Jesus pray that? Because you are the kingdom of God. Wherever you go, God goes. Wherever you are working now, God is working. When you enter your workplace tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., Christ in you arrives. Jesus is going to work tomorrow through you. Benefit number two, we will live with a greater sense of our value, dignity, and purpose. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. One of our children came home one time and she's got this invitation in her bag to a multicultural fundraising evening at the school hall. I go along to this event. At this event, I get talking to this other dad at the school. He is wearing a Mexican hat, a Hawaiian shirt, and a grass skirt. And I look at this guy and I say, Wow, I say, where are you from? And he said, Iraq. <laughs> like he really was from Iraq, you know, irrespective of the, the outfit. So we have a brief conversation, he and I, about recent events in Iraq. There then follows a whole hour of multicultural dancing. So we're dancing, so this is my multicultural dance. So we're dancing around the school hall like this for a whole hour. And then later on, I bump into him a second time, and I say to I ask him something different. I say, Would you say that everyone in Iraq is a Muslim? But he doesn't answer the question. He simply beckons me in a kind of a secretive, furtive kind of a way. Follow me, he said, over here. So he heads off towards the bar like this. I follow him, no words are expressed, towards the bar. He gets to the bar. He leans on the bar. He looks both ways. He checks that the coast is clear. He says, I have completely rejected Islam. I lean on the bar. I look both ways. I check that the coast is clear. I say, so... Have I? He said, no way. I said, yeah, for real. He said, well, that's an amazing coincidence. I said, yes, it is. He said, well, we've got to talk about this, haven't we? I said, yes, we have. He says, well, why don't you come over with your wife and your family and your kids? Why don't you come over to our flat? And my wife, Mira, and I, we will cook you and your wife and your children. We will cook you a full Kurdistani dinner. He says, come over at 3 p.m. on Saturday and we will have dinner. So that's the invitation. Now, just to give you a bit of background on what happened that Saturday, most Saturdays I am placed in sole charge of our four children. This is quite a big responsibility for me. And like many dads here, the way that I cope with this responsibility is I take them swimming. Yeah, Common dad thing. Family splash. Yeah, Saturday mornings. So we go to family splash. But I'm not very good, uh, particularly at like the changing room bit. Like 
you know, they, the, the, the washing of the hair, the, the drying of the hair, the brushing. I mean, I haven't got any hair. This is all quite complicated. And that, that they're all girls and they all, you know, all this stuff. So basically, it takes me a long time, yeah? So eventually, we get through the change room. I manage to get them home. By the time we get home, I look at the clock. I think to myself, I don't know if I've got enough time to go down Tesco's Express, buy lunch, bring it back, prepare the lunch, serve the lunch, wash everything up, and still get over to Salon's flat for 3 o'clock. So I say to my wife and kids, hey, let's all go to McDonald's. And my kids go, yay, daddy, great decision, let's go to McDonald's, fantastic. So we go to McDonald's. Folks, at McDonald's, I have a Big Mac, a large fries, this is relevant to the rest of the story, and a large strawberry milkshake. Yeah, bear that in mind. Okay, we arrive on time at 3 p.m. at Salah's flat. I'm feeling so pleased. We're on time. Mira, Salah's wife, she's a doctor. She opens the door and she says, Welcome. Welcome to our home, she says. Let us all go through and have dinner. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm thinking, what now? I thought the invitation was, come over at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner. Dinner being, by definition, an evening meal. Come over at 3 p.m. and later on, at some unspecified time in the evening, we will have dinner. But no, the actual word spoken will come over at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner. Dinner being, if you're Kurdistani, a 3 p.m. meal. And so the door opens and there's this quite large table. There are trays of food on this table. And as we're we're walking into the room, she's bringing in other, you know, the entire gross national product of Kurdistan is coming in on trays. Different regional dishes from different parts of Kurdistan are coming in. And and as I look at this table, there is only one chair. And then they explain that as the guest of honor, I am to sit in the chair. (laughs) And she explains that nobody else can start to eat until I have started eating. And so I sit down in my chair, and I feel like a king. (laughs) Various women standing around. (laughs) There I am in my chair. But then I think of my Big Mac, of my large fries, of my large strawberry milkshake. I am already full of Ronald McDonald. (laughs) And then I think of that verse in the Bible where Jesus says to his followers, eat whatever is set before you. And I think how as a young Christian, I promised that I would obey every command in the Gospels. Folks, I've got to tell you, at the end of this meal, I have never felt so bloated in all my life. I can actually feel myself expanding inside Salah's flat. And as I'm sort of sitting on my chair, almost falling off, I'm kind of passing in and out of consciousness in my inebriated state. It's a bit of a shame because actually Salah's describing something quite important. He's describing to me his profound intellectual rejection of Islam. Salah is complaining to me that he's got a spiritual void in his life. Can I help? And I tell you, I felt honored. I felt privileged to be in the room for the conversation that followed. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. As we stood up to get ready to leave, it was actually quite hard for me to stand up. Um, As we stood up, I was sort of leaning in the corridor against the wall. I never forget what he said. He said, Salah said, we want to be with you. We want you to be 
our friends. And I was deeply moved. Now, actually, all I did was I agreed to go to the school multicultural fundraising evening, but God brought someone from Iraq who he knew was spiritually open and spiritually searching. You know, at the gym, I needed to go to the gym after this episode. At the gym, I get talking to a friend of mine uh, called Chris. Chris wouldn't describe himself as a Christian. And um, Chris says to me, he asked me, what have you been up to today? I said, preparing a talk to help Christians reach unconvinced seekers with the good news about Jesus. He said, Adrian, can I give you some advice? I said, yes. He said, tell them not to say the good book says this and the good book says that because people like me, Adrian, are cynical about religion. I said, Chris, most people I meet are cynical about religion. But most people I meet, Chris, feel positive about relationships. Most people I meet, Chris, are cynical about religion, but most people I meet have a a high view, a high opinion of Jesus of Nazareth. Most people I meet actually have a high opinion of Jesus as a person. I say, Chris, the great thing is that what is on offer is not religion. What's on offer, Chris, is relationship with Jesus that goes on forever. He said, oh, he said, I can see how that could be appealing. I said, Chris, do you believe in God? He said, well, he says, that depends. I said, on what? He said, on where I am. I said, what on earth do you mean? He said, well, when I get on my bicycle and I cycle out of London and I get into the Surrey countryside and I can see the hills and the grass and the trees all around me, Chris says, I cannot bring myself to believe that it's all just a total accident. I then asked Chris my favorite question. I said, Chris, do you believe that you're alive for a reason? He said, yes. But I've absolutely no idea what it is. And again, I felt honored. I felt privileged to be in the room for that conversation that followed. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Folks, you have been appointed as an ambassador for Christ and God is on your side. All the resources of heaven have been placed at our disposal. We have been promised whenever we do speak up on his behalf, God is going to back us up and we'll be amazed to see how much the Holy Spirit will help us. Let's look at benefit number three. We will see ourselves making a difference. Now, you love this. You love it when the God who is really there, the God of the Bible, comes into somebody else's life through you. You love that. And it's as we go that Jesus says, I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus said, look, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. The apostle Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners. Jesus said of his own mission, I have come to seek and to save the lost. 
We need to remember Jesus made a conscious decision to hang out with unbelieving people. His reputation at the time was, oh yeah, we've all heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus from Capernaum. We've all heard about him. Here's what we've heard about him. He's a glutton. Jesus, yeah, we've heard about him. He's a wine-bibber. Yeah, he's, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And people said that about Jesus at the time because Jesus made a habit of deliberately spending time with irreligious people. So as soon as we even start praying for that skeptical person, we are already pointing ourselves in the same direction that Jesus pointed himself. We are lining ourselves up with the same mission that Jesus lined himself up with. And as we do so, all the resources of heaven swing in behind us and God himself is cheering us on. It's just as clear when Jesus says to his followers in John 20, 21, As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Now I find... Most of us Christians, once we've become a Christian, it's relatively simple to believe that God the Father sent Jesus the Son. Yeah? But what really is a delicious, sumptuous, marvelous thought is to think in the same way that God the Father sent Jesus the Son, Jesus is now sending me. To the same extent, in the same way, we hear it in John 17, 18, We overhear Jesus praying for you, he says. As as you have sent me, Father, Jesus says, as you have sent me, Father, into the world, I have sent them into the world. Wow. In the same way, and to the same extent that God the Father sent Jesus the Son, God is now sending you and me into our world, our neighbors, our friends, our friendship circle, our world, the people we know in our world who do not yet know Christ. As much as the Father was with Jesus, the Father is now with you. Okay, fourth of our five benefits, you'll become a stronger person with a fuller understanding of Christ. Philemon verse 6 says that it's actually through sharing our faith that you and I get an increasing awareness of how great our inheritance in Christ really is. For example, maybe I can tell you the story of a couple in our church called Richard and Jill. Now, they were active in sharing their faith with this other couple. You can see on the screen, this is an old photo of Paul and Helena Hanley. And just to give you some context... When this photo was taken, neither Paul nor Helena would have called themselves Christians. Uh, Paul was a 35-year-old insurance broker in the city of London. He had a nice house. He and Helena uh, married Helena as a nurse. They've got three lovely sons. And um, Paul is one of those people that you sometimes come across in life who is... Uh, strongly opposed to Christianity, outspokenly, vociferously opposed to the Christian faith. Now, today, Paul Hanley is the pastor of a church. Quite a big change, I'm sure you'll agree. Um, This is actually the second church that Paul and Helena have led. And if you're anything like me, you wonder, how does that happen? I mean, really? How do you go from being a 35-year-old atheist insurance broker working in the city of London to becoming the pastor of a church? I mean, how does that actually happen? 
Folks, here's how it happened. One afternoon, Paul and Helena went for a walk in the park in Caterham, in Surrey, where they lived. As they're walking along the path, Paul sees this couple from our church, Richard and Jill. Richard and Jill are sitting on the grass to Paul's left. And Paul immediately recognizes this is the Christian couple. Because remember I told you that Helena, Paul's wife, is a nurse. She works at the same hospital as Jill, this lady from our church. Jill has been active in sharing her faith with Helena. Helena Hanley has been asking Jill some questions about her Christian faith. The two of them have struck up this kind of relationship. And so Paul recognizes this is the Christian couple. So what does Paul do? He decides to blank them. He deliberately doesn't look at them. And he walks straight on the path. But there's just been too much eye contact. So eventually, Paul has to do that thing where he says, Oh, (laughs) almost walked straight by you. (laughs) I didn't see you there. How are you doing? It's great to see you. How are you? Paul says. And as he walks across, Richard and Jill are sitting there on the grass. They're having a picnic. But Paul and Helena are holding picnic boxes. And so the social rules of Surrey (laughs) dictate that Paul and Helena have to sit down and share their picnic and have the picnic together with Richard and Jill, this couple from our church. So the four of them sit down and Paul's thinking, oh no, I can't believe it. How did I get stuck with the Christians? How did this happen? But then he thinks to himself, I know what, I can just have some fun. I can have some fun with them. Because whenever they, if, if they do start talking about God or Jesus or whatever it is the Christians talk about, I will just be able to point out the logical fallacies, the factual inaccuracies. I'll be able to tie them up in their own words, Paul thinks. And so, wouldn't you just know it? Two minutes into the conversation, Helena, Paul Hanley, Paul's wife, asked Jill a question directly about her Christian faith. And for the next hour and a half, the four of them had this full-on, full-blown Conversation about God and Jesus and such subjects. And you know, Paul says, I remember as I walked back to the car an hour and a half later, I remember thinking to myself, I knew that it would be easy to win, as Paul sees it, the conversation against, as Paul sees it, the Christians. But Paul remembers thinking it was even easier than I thought it would be. So he gets back to the car. He puts the two picnic boxes in the boot of the car. He closes the boot of the car. He goes round to the driver's seat. He puts his key in the ignition. He says, before I turned on the engine, I heard myself say these words. Helena, darling, you know that credit card bill that I told you yesterday was this much? I'm ever so sorry I lied. It was much more. It was actually this much. Well, then followed a full and frank exchange of views between the married couple. Anyway, when that's died down a bit, Paul drives home, thinking, you know, what was that all about? Where did that come from? You know, what was going on there? So anyway, he pulls up. As he pulls it, it's on the gravel drive. He pulls up on the gravel drive. feels this compelling urge to go into his study. Goes into his study. Gets out a pad of blank A4 paper. Starts writing down everything that he can ever think of that he's ever done wrong. Goes back into his study every day for three days doing the same thing. When I met Paul, I asked him, Paul, why did it take you three days? He said, well, I have 35 years of stuff to write down. Now, you already know the end of the story. I tell, I've already told you they become Christians. They actually end up becoming uh, the pastors of a church. They lead a church. First time that I ever meet Paul and Helena Hanley 
is on their first ever Sunday at church. I'm on the welcome team, standing over there by the door, yeah? They come in, they walk in, this lovely couple with their three sons. I look at them, I think, I'm pretty sure I don't recognize you. I say, hi, I introduce myself. They introduce themselves. I then say, do you know anyone here? They say, oh, yeah, we know Richard and Jill. Oh, I know Richard and Jill. And so I say, well, do you mind me asking, have you ever been here before to this church? Paul replies, no, we've never been to church ever before. We've just become Christians earlier this week. I thought, what a great answer. Anyway, um, as you can imagine, I asked Paul, do you mind me asking you, Paul, how did that happen? And he tells me the story that I just told you about how it happened. And as you can imagine, towards the end of this story, I am absolutely fascinated to know and to ask, Paul, what did Richard and Jill say? What did they say to you that afternoon in the park that made you want to confess about the credit card bill? That made you want to spend three days in your study writing down everything that you'd ever done that was wrong? What was it, Paul, that Richard and Jill said to you that afternoon in the park that made you want to leave atheism at the age of 35 and become a Christian? What did they say? And he answered, oh, he said, it wasn't anything they said. I said, well, uh, what was it then? He said, oh, it was them. It was something about them. And Paul would now say that it was Christ in them. Do you know the funny thing about that story from my point of view? This is the first time that I've ever met Paul Hanley. He's literally walked in the building. He's only been in church for about two or three minutes at this point. Eight years later, Paul Hanley was the pastor of our church. And as I've just said, they now lead this other church, which is actually in Cornwall. That summer, Paul and Helena discovered that the real Jesus, who really is alive, was working through Richard and Jill to create within Paul a desire that Paul had never felt before. Paul suddenly felt this desire to be pure, to be cleansed, to be washed, to be purged. He never felt that before. But then suddenly he discovers that there's more to life than being happily married. There's more to life than being an insurance broker, than having a lovely family. There's more to life than being successful. There's more to life than being happy. There's a real God who really loves you. And you can know him forever. And that's what they discovered that summer. But just think about that story, folks, from Richard and Jill's point of view. There's Jill. She's working at the East Surrey Hospital. And she's answering questions from this other lady, Helena. And now look what's happened. Look what's come out of that. And if Jill were here this morning, she had the microphone. She'd say, hey, Philemon verse 6. Hope Church Ipswich, Philemon verse 6. Through being active and sharing my faith, I now have a fuller understanding of every good thing that I have in Christ. Wonderful. That's one of the things that happens to us. Fifth and final benefit this morning, guys. We will become more like Jesus. Wonderful. In so many ways. Let's just give one example. Jesus drew people to God by telling stories. Yeah? So as Jesus makes you increasingly more like him, don't be surprised if you find, well, do you know what? I'm beginning to get more and more pleasure through storytelling. Because people love to listen to Jesus' stories. The Bible says that the common people heard him gladly. Now, somebody could hear that and say, yeah, well, I get the 
significance of storytelling in our contemporary culture. But the thing is, someone might say, I don't really have a story. You might say, "Um, I was brought up in a Christian family. I was only eight years old when I became a Christian. Someone might say, so I don't really have like a before and after story about becoming a Christian because, you know, I was only eight years old. So I don't really have a dramatic before story. And folks, you and I know that there are some people who have a dramatic before story, yeah? I find, don't know about you, but I find often Christians from America (laughs) will have a very dramatic before story. And maybe you've heard these stories. A typical story begins something like this. Dude, I had a thousand dollar a day crack cocaine habit. I was raised in the ghetto. And my life was a blur, a blur of gang violence. And I was being chased by the feds. But then one night in prison, she... No, you can't say that. You can't say that because the truth is that before you became a Christian, you were only eight years old. And you were attending a Church of England primary school in Guildford. Now... My wife, Julia, it just so happens, is actually the most effective personal evangelist I know. Julia has led more of her friends to Christ than anyone else I know. Yet, Julia grew up in a wonderful, loving Christian family. She, of all people, could very easily say, well, I don't really have a testimony. So what does she do? Does she make one up? Does she say, yeah, yeah, I was abandoned by my parents at birth. And I was raised by a pack of wolves. And it's when I was running with the wolves, that's when I first learned to hunt and kill with my bare hands. And it was around that time that I first discovered voodoo. Is that what she says? No, that is not what she says. Folks, the truth is that Julia did not grow up in the Bronx. She never saw action in Vietnam. No, before she came to Christ, she attended Croydon High School for Girls. And about the most rebellious thing that my wife has ever done was once when she handed in her Latin homework late. (laughs) So what is her 45-second faith story? This is what she says. As a child, I worried a lot, even though, really, I had nothing to worry about. Like many people, I was a born worrier. My parents brought me up to believe the Bible And I became a Christian age 12. I was baptized at 13. But when I was 17 years old, I got glandular fever and I missed a lot of school. I could have got really worried, but I felt God's presence and I learned not to get worried about things. I had this amazing sense of peace. I went to university and I could easily have turned my back on Jesus, but I found that I didn't want to. God had done something real in my life. I was a born warrior, but God gave me peace. Ladies and gentlemen, one day there will be so many people in heaven that the Bible says it will be impossible for anyone to count them because there'll be so many. By that stage, the Bible tells us there will be at least one person from every language group, from every ethnic group, from every racial group, from every nation around the throne of God in heaven. 
That means that between now, today, and that day, we know for sure millions and millions of people are going to come to meet Jesus and know God personally. You and I get to be part of seeing that happen. We get to play our part in the most amazing thing, the most wonderful thing that will ever happen in the future history of our world. And we get to have the time of our lives in the process. We get to enjoy that journey. Right now, you and I are in the most glorious adventure. God bless you. Thank you for listening to me. I'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.